If you will, turning your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2, we will continue there. This, this morning, we've been going through the book of 1 John. And uh, from chapter 1, he started giving us some tests uh, as to what a true believer looks like. And you remember last week, we had the challenge, you love not the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that boastful pride of life. He exhorts this congregation to those things. And so now in verse 18, where we're picking up today, he's going back to the, his, his original message, what he was doing before, these tests, the test of a genuine believer. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean? What's a true Christian look like? There are lots of counterfeits. And so John is pressing this home again. The context for our passage is simple. There are some people in this local congregation, um, this congregation to which John is originally writing, uh, who have left. They have disfellowshipped themselves from this local congregation on theological grounds over the person and work of Jesus Christ. They have disfellowshipped themselves in action, uh, whether that is not attending, not, not continuing in fellowship, or in lack of love for the brothers. They've, they've, um, they've been absent from the fellowship. They've reneged on their membership. And so John is commenting in this passage on the test of a true Christian. Now, I want to say real briefly, before we read it, he's not talking about the uh, fights about color of carpet. Sometimes those kind of things happen in churches. It's foolishness. Everyone laughs about it, but strangely, it still occurs from time to time. But that's not what's happening in this church. All right? It's, it's not this. They didn't hear John preach and thought, wow, Apollos is a much better preacher, and he preaches down the street. I'm going to start going to Apollos. That's not what's taking place. All right? That's not what's going on. There are theological issues. There is a test of fellowship that's rooted in truth. And true Christian fellowship is always rooted in truth. The fact that these have, folks have left this congregation, it's rooted in the rejection of the truth, the refusal to believe and to act on the truth. So it's not something trivial, all right? So sometimes uh, we know those things happen. That's not what's going on here. It's not some petty matter. This is a serious matter that's taking place, all right? So let's read chapter 2. I'm going to start reading verse 18. And as I read, this is our outline for today. Uh, if you take notes, this is your outline. So uh, first thing there in verse 18, John is going to urge us to live in the light of the reality that we are living in the last days. That this is, These are the last days. Verse 19, he explains to us, Every true believer will not fall away, 
But every false believer will fall away. They must. And then the third thing, verses 20 and 21, all true believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, and they have a true knowledge of who God is. All right? So let's read, starting together in verse 18. Children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Amen. Sends the reading of God's word. So let's look at the first thing that John tells us to do. That you live as a Christian because of the lateness of the hour. This is the last hour hour. So you be watchful. You be on guard. All right? You live like a Christian because this is the last hour. He says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know, that it is the last hour. So John is directing these Christians, he's, he's helping them uh, to put their present experiences into a biblical perspective, and he says to them, children, this is the last hour. All right? So let's just pause right there, because this is important for us to understand. John is saying, when you read that, John is saying for Christians then, not just simply Christians now, but then, they were already living in the last hour. All right? So oftentimes, I get, I get this question. I couldn't tell you how many times a year I hear this question. Do you believe it's the end times? You know, my answer is, yes. But then let me qualify what, why I say that. Because John says it's the last hour. Right? Uh, I believe it. But let me clarify, because sometimes we're not talking about the same thing. In the scriptures, the structure of God's plan is this, that there was an old covenant it, which God used and he unfolded through signs and, and shadows and pictures, and it prefig, prefigured and pictured a reality that was to come in Christ. But then when Jesus Christ came, that reality was there in the flesh. It is inaugurated. So the end times commenced in the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews can say in the in in divers manners in in, in to the fathers uh, God spoke to the pro through prophets in, in, in very di various different ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus Christ. All right? 
Now there is a coming yet to, co yet to come, isn't there? He did come. He came in the flesh. But there is a second coming. And so all believers who live between that first coming and that second coming are living in end times, according to John. It's times that are the end of the ages. It's a time that's looking forward to the final judgment of God, the second coming, the restoration of all things in Christ. So, when the New Testament refers to end times, it is not talking about a, a period of time in, say, 1948, and then that's going to extend a few more years, and then Jesus Christ will come and he will set up a, a throne in Jerusalem. No, no, when the Bible uses that language of end times, it is from Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming. Everything in between that time is the end times. Do you see that in John? This is the last hour. We are in between the first coming and the second coming. So we are on the very cusp of the culmination of the ages. So that means, that this is important, because that means the very next thing that you are to expect is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church that John is writing to, they should have been expecting at any moment Jesus Christ may come again. You should expect at any moment Jesus Christ could come again. So John is reminding these disciples, this church, you live like a Christian because this is the last hour. The lateness of the time. Remember how Jesus said this to his disciples? Jesus said things like this. Work, for the night is coming when no man can work. What's he doing when he says things like that? He's reminding them of the shortness of time. Time is short. That you work now because you can't work later. So Christian, you do evangelism. We do missions now. Why? Because the time's coming. We won't have to do evangelism missions anymore. The time is short. The church of Jesus Christ is called to action. There's not much time left. Because Jesus Christ is coming again, not as a sin bearer, but to be the judge of sin and to be the vindicator of his people. The next great thing to happen is the second coming of Jesus Christ, the judgment. We live in light in the fact of this hour. So that's important. So whatever end times views you have, you make sure it fits with what the scriptures say. All right? That, that's what, don't say, well, my chart says this. You say, what does the scripture say? This is what we go to. This is what we look to. I do not get my theology from the headlines of a newspaper or CNN. That's a terrible place to get your theology. But it happens, I know. It causes great zeal. I remember standing in Kmart in Lexington, Virginia, the night the Gulf War broke out. And I'm watching that, and I thought in my head, this is it. This is it. And I was so twisted at the time. You know what my second thought was? I'm not ever going to get married. <laughs> that was what went through my brain. But here we are. 
Headlines is not the place to have our theology informed. I remember even good men, John Wolverud writes a book, Sodom Hussein and the Coming Armageddon. Sodom Hussein is dead. I keep a book on my shelf that says Mussolini and the Antichrist. Guess what? Mussolini didn't know him. Doesn't know him. Mussolini's gone. But don't take the headline news because we can be so convinced that this is it. This is what's happening and we'll be disappointed. But John says something very interesting, doesn't he? Just as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. So when I, even when we read that, your brain starts going, <laughs> all kind of questions. Man, what's happening here? You got all sorts. Well, we won't be able to deal with all of our questions in this 40 minutes. But let me give you some framework of what he's to help with what John is saying. Since the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament, since the Old Testament, God has been telling his people in his word that there will be one who is raised up against the true Messiah. He will be a counterfeit Messiah. You see it in the book of Daniel. Chapter 8, chapter 9, he will be an anti-Messiah, someone who stands over and against the Messiah. It's not just a New Testament idea, this is an Old Testament idea as well. That's where it comes from. So John can say, just as you hear that Antichrist has come, you've heard it. It's there, it's there from Daniel 8 and 9. John is the one who uses this term, anti-Messiah, right, in the New Testament, anti-Christ. He's using that. But he's saying, you know this is the case because you've already learned that. You've seen it before in the Old Testament, even from Daniel. It's there. Now, he's not drawing your attention to things like this. Well, is this just one person at the end of history? Or... But, but, and I want to say that because a lot of people, again, have missed that, haven't they? Mussolini and the Antichrist. No, it wasn't. Uh, Hitler. No, it wasn't. Maybe in your lifetime. Anyone ever hear that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist? And the reason was his name, each name had six letters. That's how they derived it. Or Henry Kissinger, I've heard that in my lifetime. Now, I will say it's really strange to me that Henry Kissinger looked old when I was growing up, and he still looks the exact same today. It's very strange. I don't think he's that. It's not. All right? He's not asking that question about, hey, who is this person at the end of history? He's not saying, uh, it, it, well, is it going to be a person who comes and pretends to be that he is Jesus who has come again. That's possible. Is it going to be some form of worldly tyranny that's raised up against the people of God? Yeah, possibly, but that's not his point. That's not what he's driving home. His point is to say this. This principle of Antichrist is already present, and it's already present in this local congregation, and it's present where? In the people who deny the Bible's truth about who Jesus is. They deny the scriptures. They deny truth about Jesus. You know, people are quick to do that. Remember the Da Vinci Code, the book 
A novel? How many people take a novel and start understanding it as, hey, this is, this is facts. This is history. No, it's not. It was a novel. This principle of Antichrist. Anything that is set in place of Christ in the Bible. So we need to make sure that our view of Jesus is derived from the scriptures and not from anywhere else. That the Jesus I believe in, the Jesus I worship, the Jesus I bow the knee to, is the Jesus that the scriptures declare and sets forward. Not a Jesus of my own imagination. I worship Jesus the Messiah, the one whom the Bible declares and proclaims is Jesus the Messiah. That's precisely what John's saying here. There are many antichrists who have already appeared. In other words, in this local congregation, there are people who have rejected the Bible. They reject what the Bible says about Jesus. And what have they done because of that? They've left the church. That's why in verse 19, they've left, they've gone off into their own fellowship, they've disfellowshipped themselves. And so John says, hey, this is proof that we're living in the end times. It's just like Daniel said would happen way back in Daniel chapter 7 and 9. From this, we know it's the last hour. Well, do you believe it's the last hour? Do you believe Jesus Christ is coming again? Well, what does John say we should do about that? First thing he says, you should live in the re re reality of the lateness of the hour. We are living in the end times, and he wants us to live with a view that says Jesus Christ is coming again. Do you believe that? Does it affect the way you live? The coming of Jesus Christ, the culminating point of history, the wrapping the whole thing up, the second coming of Christ. Do you, do you believe in the final judgment? You know, if you really believe in the final judgment, it will affect the way you live. It has an effect. To live consciously with the reality that Jesus Christ is going to come back and to receive his own. I, I do not want him to come and for me to be ashamed. Let me give you an example of what the Christian hopes for. You know, it is a glorious reality. 2 Corinthians 5.8 is a glorious truth, isn't it? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's a sweet comfort, isn't it? It's a true statement. It's wonderful. But that's not the ultimate hope of the believer. Did you know that? That's not our ultimate hope. Let me give you an example. Uh, just well, let, I'll start with a song a hymn, and then we'll work it out with the scriptures, all right? So uh, the song, For All the Saints, I, I think it is 418. Yeah, 418. The ultimate hope of the Christian is expressed here in the song, For All the Saints. So in stanzas four and five, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. 
So the thing that I'm living for is not my dying day when my soul goes immediately to be into the presence of Christ. As glorious as that is, as wonderful as that is, and as comforting as that is, that is not the day that I'm living for. I'm living for a day when my resurrected body will stand with you in your resurrected body and all the saints, and we will see Jesus in his resurrected body. That's what we're living for. That's what we're going for. So uh, in the song, when all the saints in triumphant rise and bridal ray and the king of glory passes on his way from earth's wide bounds to ocean's farthest coast through gates of pearl stream the countless hosts singing to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's what we're looking for. When all the believing world, a multitude which no man can number, are gathered together, not just as some kind of ethereal spirits, but as re-embodied persons, reunited with our resurrected bodies. And we will see with our own eyes, our own eyes, the victory of the Lord Jesus. That's what we are looking for. Even as Scott was reading, I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The Lord will lift me up above my enemies, all around me. So is death an enemy? Yes, he's the last enemy who will be defeated, and Christ will raise us up over that. And we will look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so the psalm ended to be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. He's coming. Do you know that he's coming? Does it affect the way you live? It should. That's what John is from. Live in light of the last times. A football metaphor, Sam. It's the fourth quarter. That's what John says. It's the fourth quarter. So we're in Bull County. We can use football metaphors at church, right? It's the fourth quarter. It's not, don't, don't live your life like it's the first quarter. When you come out and you're a little rusty and you get some penalties. No, no. It's two-minute warning. And you've got to be exact and precise. You, you do that because the next thing that's going to happen, the referee's going to blow the whistle, the, the horn's going to sound, the championship trophy's going to be bestowed. This is the end of the quarter. It's, it's all coming to an end. And so that calls for urgency in the way we live, urgency in the gospel witness, right? There's an urgency to that. That's why Jesus says, work for the night is coming when no man can work. And we do live with an urgency, but we also live with this sweet expectancy. We know he's coming, and he's coming again. And of course, John's main point here is primarily negative, right? Verse 18, we also live watchfully. We know it's the last days that many will attempt to lead us astray. So how do you live? Circumspect. We're watchful. We're on guard. I'm not going to be taken in by the laziness of this age. I'm not going to be taken in by goofy ideas and false teaching. Why? Because it's the last days. I'm going to stick to the truth, the truth of God's word, the, the, the pl game plan of God. The clock is ticking down. And John says here in verse 18, Christians need to live in light 
of the lateness of the hour. Be watchful. Be on guard. Just like now, when John's writing, there are those in the church that did not embrace Jesus as king. Maybe they opposed him. Maybe they bowed knee to a counterfeit Christ. But he's telling that congregation, you live watchfully. You live in the light of the last hour. Christian, be discerning. Be discerning. Second thing, true believers cannot fall away from the faith. But false believers, not only they do they, they have to. So verse 19, all true believers, they won't fall away. They can't fall away. False believers, not only can they, they always do. So let me explain that. I don't want to be misunderstood, right? John's words, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that they would be shown that they all are not of us. So there are some false teachers and members who leave this church, false teachers, false believers. Uh, but it's interesting, right? How does John describe it? He doesn't say this. Now, these people are true believers, and they didn't persevere. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say these believers, they had all the gifts of God except for perseverance, and they fell away. doesn't say that. He does not say they're true Christians who failed to persevere. That's not what he says. He says when they left, they revealed who they really are. They were never truly believers. They were never part of the true church. They did not belong to Christ because they could not, otherwise they would not leave Christ. They revealed their true colors by rejecting Christ and rejecting Christ's people. So they went out from us, but they were not really of us. You see what John's saying? Yes, they left. They left. So imagine these Christians in this congregation, right? They're scratching their heads. They're saying, well, can I, can I lose my salvation? Can I apostatize from the faith? Uh, if, I, if I am a true Christian, well, am I going to lose it too? And John says, yes, they went out from us. Yes, they professed to be part of us. Yes, they had been baptized. Yes, they departed from the faith. Yes, they rejected Jesus Christ. Yes, they severed themselves from the body of Christ. But that shows they were never Christ to begin with. They were never Christ in the first place. It's interesting, right, thing here for John to say, because a lot of people would see, and, and the experience says, hey, I've worshipped with that person, I've taken communion next to that person, I've prayed with that person, I, I was in a small group with that person, and now they've left the faith altogether. So experience says, that means you can lose your salvation. And John says, no, 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 no. No, that says they never were a true believer. They were false believers, and they revealed their true color. They were Christian in name only. 
Their hearts did not belong to Christ. And actually, he's saying this by way of encouragement, isn't he? To these who were there. So how can this happen? How can people that receive baptism like I've received baptism, and how can people who've come to the Lord's table, how, is something wrong? What if it's wrong with me too? What if I lose my salvation? He says, yes, John says, there is something wrong, but it's not with you. It's not you who are there believing and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is with those who have rejected the Messiah. The problem is not with God's promise. The problem is not with God's salvation, which is sure. The problem is not with our assurance of faith. The problem is not with our perseverance. The problem is not with the Holy Spirit who, is the, who seals the believer for the day of redemption. The problem is not with them. The problem is they never believed. True believers cannot fall away from the faith. False believers must fall away from the faith. They're disfellowshipping themselves. They show, it shows the state of their hearts. And the heart says, this is someone, not who knew grace and lost it, but they never knew grace to begin with. They pretended to know grace. They may have said they knew grace, but they did not. They did not. And that's, in, that's an important truth. Christian, if you wrestle with assurance of, the, of your own faith, John does not want you to question the salvation which God gives you. Matter of fact, he comes back at the end of verse 21, and just so you understand what he's getting at, he's not trying to utter, unsettle your confidence, but he's trying to confirm it. So the Christian reads this and says, I'm not going to fall away. I'm going to be a soldier for Christ. I am going to persevere. I don't want to be like that. And the Spirit of God is in me, and I'm united to Christ. I, I, I love Christ, and I love his people. The fellowship with God's people is built upon the reality of Jesus Christ and our union with him. If we reject the reality of Jesus Christ, hey, we're not capable of sharing fellowship with those who are in fellowship with Christ. So here are people rejecting the truth, and the consequences of that is rejecting fellowship. In fact, there's no possibility of having true fellowship. There's none. So that's what's happening in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Third thing. All true believers are anointed with and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, thus... The believer has a true knowledge of God. Because we are indwelt by, we're anointed by the Holy Spirit, we have a true knowledge of God. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Now that's a term that John usually uses in relation either God the Father or God the Son. Uh, of Christ anointing us even as the priest would have been anointed or God the Father anointing us as even a priest would have been anointed. And he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know, you all know, right? Now this is probably a direct jab, a burr, against these false teachers. 
Because what do the false teachers say? We've got a special anointing. We have a secret knowledge about God that you don't have. No, 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 John says. If you're a Christian, you have the anointing. You have knowledge of God. They claim a secret anointing. They claim some kind of special anointing, kind of secret knowledge about God. No, no, no. In the fact, you have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you have been initiated into this true knowledge of God. Okay, Christian? If, if you have the Holy Spirit, you know God. This is the same thing Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Flip over there with me. Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, in chapter 3, Paul's got this prayer, beginning in verse 14. He says he bows his knee to the Father for, and he tells us what he's bowing his knee to the Father for, what he's praying. And in verse 16, he's praying that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts with faith. So the Spirit would strengthen you with power in the inner man, so that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Every believer is anointed by God with the Holy Spirit in order that Christ would dwell in your hearts. We receive the Spirit and the anointing of God. That's not something that happens after salvation. It's not some kind of like second step, some kind of higher step into some secret knowledge that all Christians don't know and have. It is what God uses to bring us into the very knowledge of Christ. It's the Spirit's work. And the Spirit's work is ongoing, right? So if you turn on the TV and you hear some snake oil salesman claiming to have some anointing and to, or declaring that this place has an anointing, they are fundamentally un misunderstanding what the Scripture says in the New Testament and how the scripture uses that language. The scripture says, if you are a believer, you have the anointing. And that anointing comes from God the Father and God the Son, and the anointing is the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, that the Spirit is the seal the Spirit is the anointing. The Spirit himself is the blessing that is poured upon us so that we might have Christ dwell in our hearts. And then John closes with these words. Did you notice them? I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. In other words, John is saying, I'm not bringing you some kind of new truth here. This isn't is something new that you've never heard before. He's saying, I'm saying these things to give you confidence that you would have confidence to stand in Christ, confidence to stand in doctrinal truth, the truth that John taught, the truth that Paul taught, the truth that Jesus had revealed. And these people had believed that their unity is built around truth. You know, unity is centered around truth. Biblical unity is around truth. It's not a sentimental thing. 
You know the song, uh, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds? The tie that binds is not that we sort of like each other. That's not the tie that binds us together. The tie that binds us is Jesus Christ by the Spirit and our profession of faith in him. This is what creates Christian fellowship. There's no true believer who ever disfellowships himself from Christ or from all of Christ's people. So that's why this test of fellowship is very important because it shows whether I understand who Jesus is and what he did and what, what he did accomplishes in me. So what did his life, his death, his resurrection, what did it do in me and for me to change me? Do you believe it's the last hour? John says, let that affect then how we live. As we're about to sing, we will see him, we will know him. Oh, what heights of grace revealed. From his kindness, every promise, then fulfilled. Trust in Jesus. He will keep us to the end. He will keep you to the end. Trust in him. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord, you are great and glorious. Lord, I pray for those in this room today, for unbelievers who are here, even as they think of the lateness of the hour and the coming judgment of, uh, of God, may they repent of sins and trust in Jesus Christ, knowing that the time is short. I pray for every believer in this room that we would know what the hour is. It is the fourth quarter. So we have to be on point. And we're going to live for him. And we'll be watchful. We'll be on guard. And we're going to be on mission. Because it's the last hour. Lord, we thank you for your great grace that does keep us. Lord, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, even when we're faithless, you are faithful. And so we praise you for that. And Lord, we know that we do wander, we do stray, we, we do sin. And if we were just left to ourselves, we would make shipwreck of the faith. So Lord, may our faith be in Christ alone. Not in our own keeping of ourselves but in Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit in us that seals and keeps and preserves. We thank you that the gift is eternal life and not six-month life or ten-year life, but it's eternal. Lord, would you do a great thing among us and in our hearts. Lord, we pray this because you, you have. You have given us your own Holy Spirit. And we do not walk through this world 
by our own might and strength, but by your Spirit. We are soldiers in this well-fought fight, not because of how strong we are, but because your Spirit dwells in us, that Christ dwells in us by your Spirit. And you have equipped us in this life to be yours. Oh, Lord, now set on our hearts a great expectation that we would say, like with John later on, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For we are not living just to shed these mortal bodies. But we know that great and glorious day is coming when these bodies will be raised and united with our spirits once more. And we will gaze with our own eyes on your beauty and your goodness in the land of the living. Come quickly, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.